Welcome to the Andy Mazur Podcast. I'm Andy, and thank you for being here. Remember, hit that subscribe button if you like what you're hearing, wherever you may be listening across the many different podcasting platforms like Spotify, Google, Anchor, and Apple Podcasts. I've also created a YouTube page, so just search Andy Mazur Podcast for video trailers of each week's podcast, and I certainly appreciate you checking us out. This podcast is sponsored locally by Roots Pizza with four convenient Chicago area locations. There's sure to be a Roots Pizza near you. Stop in for Quad City-style pizza with that sweet malted crust. And don't forget to order the mozzarella sticks. They are unforgettable and simply life-changing. For more information, head to rootspizza.com. Today, we're going to feature some of the best of Season 3 podcasts. There have been some interesting guests on the show this season, and we'll feature some snippets of those interviews. And remember, you can listen back to any or all of the podcasts from this season and the previous two seasons on my homepage at anchor.fm. Just search for the Andy Mazur Podcast. Back in March, I had the opportunity to chat with former Reds broadcaster Tom Brenneman, who was let go from his job with the ball club and by Fox Sports after uttering a gay slur into a hot mic during a broadcast in 2020. This is the Andy Mazur Podcast. done a lot of work now with the lgbtq plus community and had a chance to really react with them or actually listen to you know what they've had to say about the whole thing as well i mean and what was the first experience of that like i mean because again you pointed out that you know you had some gay friends but yet you weren't going to be around that community all the time because of what we do and, and just in general but what was that first experience like well, you know, the first couple of experiences were, were more just conversations. Billy Bean, not the Billy Bean, the general manager, but the Billy Bean, who's the assistant uh, to the commissioner of uh, Rob Manfred in Major League Baseball, former player with the Dodgers, young player, very successful player, uh, was gay <clears throat> at a time where you couldn't tell anybody that you were gay. He had a lot of problems, uh, which forced his career to, to come uh, to an abrupt halt as like a 24-year-old. And, you know, I talked to him for quite a while uh, in the ensuing days. Uh, he put me in contact with some other people through different channels in the gay community, uh, locally and nationally. But the one that made the biggest impact by far, uh, there, there, there's a guy here in Cincinnati whose name is Ryan Messer. He's a gay man. Him and his husband have four children. Uh, he's a uh, big executive with Johnson & Johnson. He's on the Cincinnati Public Schools Board. He is considered to be the leading voice of the whole LGBT community here in Cincinnati. And, and within 48 hours after I said what I said, he wrote a letter to the editor in the Cincinnati Enquirer saying that <clears throat> I should not be fired and that there is a learning moment for everybody here, for the Reds, for the gay community, for Tom Brenneman, for you know everybody involved. Let's make something positive out of this. And, and so I reached out to him just to say thank you. And, you know, what, what, uh, what can I do to get better? Not, not to get my job back, because that was already done. The people didn't know about it, maybe in the public that it was done, but it was done. And he invited me over to his house. Uh, it was my birthday. I'll never forget it as long as I live. It was about a month after I said what I said. It was on September the 12th. Really hot day here in Cincinnati. Really hot. And he invited maybe 14 or 15 other gay voices, gay community voices uh, in greater Cincinnati, Louisville, Columbus, Indianapolis, um, 
men and women all came to his house and I'm sitting on the front porch and um, I was the only one <laughs> sitting in the sun and it was a thousand degrees that day. It was in the middle of the day and, and, uh, and to listen to what that word meant to the people um, that were there. There were of the 15, there were 12 who uh, were open-minded into me being there, giving me a chance to listen um, and to learn and to grow a little bit. There were three that, uh, you know, I mean, they, they looked at me and they, they called me a fraud and told me I was just checking boxes for being there. And I don't know about you, Andy, but, you know, I haven't been a lot of places in my life where I got people looking at me and calling me a fraud and a lot of other bad names and just staring you right in the eye and just saying, I think, you know, this is a joke. Uh, you don't care at all about the gay community. You're just trying to check a box and get your job back. Um, and it was uh, it was a rough day. I mean, it. I was here for about, I don't know, two and a half, three hours. And uh, I came back home and my wife uh, was going to throw a surprise party for me that night at our house. And we still had some friends over, couples over, but it was a, uh, it was a very moving experience that day. You know, this is kind of a, a society that we live in that, uh, you know, obviously they, they don't forget, Yeah, but a lot of times they will forgive, especially yeah. with the way that that individual goes about the way that he tries to uh, repair him, not, I guess repair image is kind of a bad way to put it, but to, to, the way you go about trying to get back. Into no, the, that's the way to put it. Okay. I mean, but I, I think that, you know, there's two ways to go. I mean, there's one way it could be the, the angry person could be like, you know, screw this, screw that, screw, you know, and then the way you go. So yeah. I'm, I'm wondering in your mind, if you think now in this second chance society, the way you've handled things, and again, it's not a situation you ever want to be in. You, you know, you obviously you wouldn't want to be in it in the first place. But do you yeah. think that there will come a time that someone will say, "Tom, you, you've you've done your thing. You know, you've paid your you, you've paid your uh, your dues here again. We want you to come back. We want you to go ahead and do this." Andy, I would like to tell you that uh, look, you you can't have anything if you don't have faith and you don't have hope because you have to have those things to just keep going in life. I mean, people who are, you know, doing things and going places that none of us ever want to go. I mean, really dark places. They don't have faith. They don't have hope. I have both of those things. Having said that, um, as you and I sit here uh, in the final days of March in 2022, I show and feel uh, I don't see very little of that ability to forgive so far. Now, do I think it'll change? I think and I hope and I pray that it'll change. The Andy Mazer Podcast. Let's get you back to Andy. That was Tom Brenneman featured in March on the Andy Mazer Podcast. Up next in our best of season three show is Ricky Cobb. He runs the Twitter account named Super 70 Sports. It's a fun look back at things that happened in the world of sports in the 70s and the 80s, plus pop culture as well. Ricky writes interesting captions to his photos, and thus it became a must-follow on Twitter. Ricky Cobb appeared in May on the podcast. How did you stumble into this? You know, that that is something that I've asked myself uh, many times because, uh, you know, it's it, obviously it's a joy. I, I feel so lucky 
uh, that this has happened. I, you know, I, I really feel like I caught lightning in a bottle. And it goes back to I was on uh, Christmas break uh, about, I don't know, maybe about eight years ago. And I think I was just looking for something to amuse myself in, in my downtime. And I've, I've always been, you know, sort of a comedically minded person. You know, I'm that guy. And I think that uh, I was looking for an outlet for that. And I, I thought, you know, maybe my friends would follow it. Maybe a few other people, you know, might notice it. But I, I never I never thought I would make a dime uh, you know, in, in terms of creating a career for myself, it was strictly something that I, I thought might be a little side. Andy Mazur podcast. So how much time of day now, do you think you spend, you know, looking through and trying to find pictures and trying to come up with those captions? Oh God. I mean, it, uh, you know, it, it, it's in intermittent spurts, you know, from the minute that I wake up until the minute that I go to bed, really. Um, it's become a part of my lifestyle. My phone is, you know, almost an extension of myself uh, at this point, you know, in my life. And so, you know, I would say easily I'm doing it, you know, more than 10 hours a day, uh, which is, you know, pretty insane. But it is uh, it's something that I work uh, doing, you know, pretty much no matter where I am or, or what's going on, you know. I'm the guy who would be, you know, on his phone at a funeral, you know, just because I, <laughs> I've got to do it, you know, even if I'm on vacation and I, I was in Las Vegas, uh, last weekend and, you know, I'm, I'm tweeting as, as I'm walking from one casino to the next, you know, uh, because I've always got to feed the beast, you know, I, I tweet about maybe 25 times a day. So it's, it's constant. Yeah, and you know, you'd think that you have a team of writers because of all the, the the captions that you're coming up with. I mean, yeah, okay, we'll let the kids know there's some blue uh, blue words in there that maybe aren't suitable for uh, those under 13. But for those in the in the generation you're trying to go for, Gen X, 70s and 80s, I mean, it's it hits the mark. Yeah, I mean the you know the the, the language is one of those things that you know people do bring up to me, and I you know I just tweet like I think. And I tweet like I speak and, you know, really, I, I think the tone of the feed is that you're hanging out with me because that's really the way that I've always viewed it. You know, if it's my Twitter account, then and, and I had no thought that I was trying to build a brand or create an audience or whatever. I think the thing that's kind of most beautiful about Super 70s is it's all been completely organic. And, you know, I think my audience knows that, particularly the the ones that have been with me for a few years, that I'm just a guy, uh, you know, like, like, like my followers are, right? You know, we're just guys. And I just hit a little sweet spot for myself and found this, uh, found this niche, uh, you know, and, and, and what I came to realize is that you know, it, it's not just a few hundred people or my friends or my family that were interested. It turns out that there's so many of us, sort of this silent army uh, of us that remember with, you know, great fondness and affection, uh, you know, the 70s and the 80s and, and 90s. And so it's it's almost like we have a little uh, high school class reunion of sorts every day, you know, even if we didn't all go to the same school. The Andy Mazur Podcast. Now, here's Andy.
That was Ricky Cobb from the massively successful Super 70 Sports Twitter account. He appeared in May on the Andy Mazur podcast. Up next, a recent addition to the podcast. In fact, it was just last month I featured Joe Johnson from Obvious Shirts. His company puts out sports shirts, mainly Chicago Cubs themed, that are well, well, obviously stated, such as the one that got him started. Jake Arrieta is good at baseball. And it's taken off from there. The train is moving down the tracks, and it's uh, you know it's, it's gaining some momentum and gaining some speed. I, I'm kind of curious too. You, you know, you, you start to come up with these things. You know, what what poses what passes, I guess, in your brain for? Okay, this is a T-shirt. This is not a T-shirt. I'm sure there's a thousand thoughts that go through your head every day. And you think, okay, well, this eh, this might work, or nah, that's stupid. That's not going to work. Yeah. Man, you are you. You ask great questions. You must have had like you must have like a career in like sports media and journalism <laughs> and marketing or something like that. Um, so the I'm my own litmus test. It sounds corny, but if it's something that I would wear, I'll make it. I I think I have a really good pulse on what Cub fans and what sports fans maybe want or desire. Um, I'm very lucky because people seem to like what I like and have the same you know, not the exact same interest, but overall we kind of overlap on interest. So it, a lot of the inspiration comes just from watching the games. I watch every single Cubs game. If I'm not at it, I have it on uh, any one through nine. Like I listen and I just think of things, make a shirt and, and taking that a step further. Okay. I have a good phrase or saying now, how does it look on a shirt? Because you can, some words are long and how it overhangs or underhangs a margin or whatever. Like sometimes a good phrase is just not going to look good. So I'll tweak it or I just won't go with it because it doesn't look again, it's words on shirts, but you can make words on shirts kind of read and, and how you read it should be kind of emphasis on how it, how the message comes across. And so I take that into consideration. Um, so there's a lot of factors that go into it, but the plan is, to open up ideas in the creation in the community to all the people of the community. I said that completely wrong. The idea is to get other people's involvement. Cause right now I would say 95% of every shirt has been um, my idea. And I want to open that up to more people, more fans and get them involved to strengthen the community of what we're building. And quite frankly, like, I don't have the only good ideas. A lot of people are very talented and creative out there and I want their buy-in and I want to make sure if I use their idea that they are uh, happy with how either A, they're compensated or giving them proper credit. Uh, that's big with me is making, keeping things original to my creative. And if it's not original, cause it's very easy to create a shirt that probably has already been created in the last 20 years across the the entire country of America, it's, it's, it's likely that um, there's duplicates or shirts that might be close enough. I just want to make sure that I do it my way, keep it, keep it honest and get people buying. You're also a, a good neighbor. And, uh, you know, I've tweeted this to you before and, you know, we've lost some, some tremendous people in my business uh, over the last, uh, over the last year, including mm -hmm. Jeff Dickerson and Les Grobstein and just recently Moon Mullen. And, you know, one of my really good friends, Mark Silverman, went through a, a terrible situation with cancer and was able to beat it. And who's there for them to help them raise money but you? And I'm showing some of the the, the, mm -hmm. uh, the shirts that you designed for that. And actually, uh, Sylvie's son, Mason, did, did the, the one at the top in the in the middle uh, with Sylvie is strong. Yep. Uh, to me, that that kind of, that you know, I talked about the players getting it. But to me, that means 
to me that you get it because you can really do some good. And I think you really did a, a you, you did a mm-hmm. great job with the JD situation and the, the money that you raised for for his son who's now orphaned uh, at 11 years old. I mean, that's the worst thing that you could ever think of. Uh, but you, you kind of went beyond that. And, you know, and uh, the shirt is phenomenal. And I think that all the stuff that you've done, and I'm showing uh, folks uh, the Lou Gehrig situation, the Team Mongo with uh, Steve McMichael, it, it, it really it really tears at my heartstrings to know that you know, there's somebody in that community and someone in that realm that, that understands that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, thank you. Like that is that when I said like the players and interacting with the players and, and chopping up business with them is like one of the might be the most rewarding part. Um, this by far, this is a different, this is a whole different emotion, a whole different feeling. This guy goes, this goes like deep with me. Um, and it's like, this is the, this is more of the why, right? The, the, the t-shirts are the vehicle to raise awareness, to do some cool designs. But the mission of obvious shirts is to give back and to be a good community partner and a good community neighbor. Um, I didn't ever think I could come to this level of being able to provide to charities. And like, that's not, again, that was not, I'll be honest, that was not in the plan, but that has become such a huge aspect of why I love this job and why I love doing this. And more so it's taken, it it takes a lot of time to do this. Like we're a company of three people up until a year ago, it was just me and and my girlfriend helped. We, We have, we've hired incredible help that's allowed us the fortune because when when you spend time doing a charity, which is a lot of work, especially when you sell thousands of shirts, it takes a lot of time, time away from the rest of the business. That is time that I will always, always happily sacrifice uh, the good of the company for the good of goodwill and giving back, especially, you know, guys like Sylvie, who I grew up listening to, you know, Steve McMichael, um, you know, my father, my father passed away, but that was his favorite Chicago bear. And it's like, with JD, JD was my guy for everything bears. I would always go to JD to be like, if I heard rumors or rumblings, like go to JD, JD will, if it's true, JD will be talking about it. If it's not, then it's a rumor, but the connections with everything, it, it means a lot to me. So that's why I wanted to give involved, get involved and give it my all because it, it mattered. And I'm super, super blessed that I had a very good mom. Um, you know, I was raised by a single mom and she taught me like super early on to give back and how important that was. And, you know, the job I had before this, I made really good money and I was living on the 31st floor overlooking the Chicago river in downtown Chicago, great money, great, great life, great, any great gig and all that. And what I learned from that is that I don't need that much money to make me personally happy. I don't need much. Like I don't, I have, my mortgage, my car, and, you know, some time for me and Grace, my girlfriend, to maybe go on a trip or two a year, maybe. Other than that, I don't want, I don't want the money. I want to give away that, any, the proceeds that come in from the shirts. Like, so, yeah, I'm talking in circles again, but it's, that's been by far the most rewarding part is, you know, understanding that I have now an, an impact to do good and I'm going to do to the best of my ability, try to do as good as I can with that time and money that I have because they need money more than I do. I do, I just, I'm not too worried about money anymore. Having had it and didn't 
didn't really have you know the happiness that I have now. I have freedom and happiness now. I don't have as nearly as much money as I had back then, but it doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is the creative, making Cub fans happy, and you know giving my time and money to places that are deserving of it. And all of those were very deserving of it. Joe Johnson from Obvious Shirts. You can check out their online store at obviousshirts.com. We'll continue with more of the best of season three in just a moment. The Andy Mazer podcast is sponsored by Roots Pizza, part of the 5050 group with four locations throughout the city of Chicago, South Loop, Old Town, Lincoln Square, and the flagship restaurant in West Town. Roots features quad city style pizza with the ingredients on top of the cheese and it's cut into strips. The crust is malted for that hint of sweetness with every bite. Don't forget to order the mozzarella sticks. They are simply life-changing. Roots is open for dine-in and carry-out. And for the restaurant location near you, head to rootspizza.com or download their app from the App Store or Google Play Store. Roots Pizza, take it from me. It's so good. The Andy Mazur Podcast. Now, back to Andy. Welcome back to the best of Season 3 of the Andy Mazur Podcast. Next up is the voice of the Chicago Bulls on radio, Chuck Swirsky, a pioneer in sports talk radio in the city of Chicago and a veteran play-by-play man and a great follow on Twitter. That talk show you started at CFL, uh, you, you actually moved on to to the loop to kind of do that as yeah. well. Now, was this something that when you got into this whole thing as far as being a talk show guy, is that what you wanted to do? I mean, is that something that you said to yourself, okay, well, yeah, I'm going to go to Chicago and I'm going to be a talk show host and that's what I'm going to do? No, you know what? My, my goal was, well, I'm going to back up a little bit. So as a kid, um, I loved sports. I was horrible. I was the worst athlete. I was the shortest kid in every classroom. And I mean, I got bullied as a kid. Um, and it, it was not fun. Um, you know, I was the shortest, non-athletic. Uh, we, would have, we would have PE class. And so they would make us do things like, okay, here's a medicine ball. Well, the medicine ball weighs more than I do, okay? (laughs) I mean, and you're expecting me to take this medicine ball that weighs probably 40 pounds, and I'm like 48 pounds, and you expect me to lift this up, and we get get graded by how far you can throw the medicine ball. And I'm thinking, this makes no sense. But again, the times of which we lived in that era, they, they said, hey, you know, you get a D. Why? Because like, I'm thinking to myself, something's amiss. But so I'm a horrible athlete. But when I was a kid, my dad died. Suddenly, my mom is a school teacher. Her brother was a priest. And worked and and served uh, the Baltimore community. Well, one of the families that attended this church happened to be Vince Bagley, who was like the guy in Baltimore. He was the dean of Baltimore sports. He just recently passed away a couple of years ago at the age of 93. Unbelievable human being. They took me in. I lived in their house every summer. I would go to every event of Vince where he went to the TV station. I saw him preparing a TV sportscast. I would go to Oriole games, sit in the press box. I met Ernie Harwell at the age of 11, who turned out to be one of my closest personal and professional friends. 
at 11. And that relationship ended two weeks before he passed away when I went to see him for the final time in his life. I mean, that's how crazy this business is. So here I am, I'm going to Colt's training camp with Vince, all these things, I'm meeting people left and right. I mean, you know, Brooks Robinson, the Hall of Fame third baseman in his prime, walks into Vince's home because they're such good friends to go play golf. And here I am in the living room and Brooks Robinson walks in Andy, I'm, I'm 11 years old. And <laughs> pinch me, <what>? pinch me. <laughs> so I, but as a kid growing up in Seattle, I wanted to be an NBA play-by-play announcer. That was my goal. I loved the NBA even before the Sonics became uh, an expansion team in 67. But I, I would, I would turn on the TV and I would always, and the ABC did the games. And it would always be Philly and Boston, maybe a little Cincinnati with Oscar Robertson. And sometimes maybe, maybe the Lakers, but it was always Boston, Philly and New York. And I decided this is what I want to do. I mean, this is what I wanted to do. Yeah. And your Twitter messages uh, just in general. I mean, I know that uh, you started this a little while ago just to kind of inspire people because there is so much negativity out there on social media. Absolutely. Listen, social media, and I'm on it quite a bit, as you know, Andy, and it can be very, very good. It's good in our business because things, I mean, we used to wait, Andy, I'm from the old school where if a story broke, you either heard about it on channel five, seven, nine, whatever, um, and, or two, sorry, didn't want to admit WBBM there. (laughs) Um, or you got it the next day in the trip or sometimes or daily Herald or Southtown. But now if there's a trade, if the 76ers make a trade, it's on within seconds and it's probably with Shams or Woj. I mean, you know, <laughs> it used to be the beat reporter where now these two guys in the NBA, Andy, are so well connected with agents and players and GMs. And it's a big game and they trade information for other information, or they've really ingratiated themselves with an individual on the in, in, inside where now, I mean, it's boom, 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 boom. And it's happening quickly. And so, I mean, you have to adapt to it. This is the Andy Mazur podcast. Chuck Squirsky is a great follow. You can check him out at, at CTS Bulls on Twitter. John Owens joined me in June to talk about the book he co-authored, Chili Dog MVP, Dick Allen, the 1972 White Sox, and a transforming Chicago. A good read and a fun interview. Why write this book? What, what about Dick Allen was so intriguing to you? Uh, well, I had the uh, good fortune to meet him back in 2012 when the um, uh, White Sox were celebrating the 40th anniversary of that 1972 team. If you remember, they wore the uh, red pinstripes on Sundays. And Dick uh, made a a rare appearance um, uh, uh, back in Chicago during um, late June to celebrate that team on one Sunday. And I had the good fortune of meeting him then. My co-author, David Fletcher, knew him very well. And he was the guy who actually sort of arranged for that 1972 reunion. 
Um, and, and, and Dick it, it was, was a wonderful person and he was a wonderful player. And, and, uh, my, my co-author who again, knew him very well and is a physician and, and, and treated him from time to time, uh, was with him uh, during his last days in, in 2020. And, and after Dick's death and, and, and the, the two disappointing, um, attempts, recent attempts to get him into the hall of fame, my, my co-author and I. Well, you know, it's time to to really uh, put Dick back on the map because he was so important uh, uh, to the the White Sox organization at a time when 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 the team was was really uh, struggling and and uh, in danger of moving. So he really, you know, re regenerated the fan base and 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 brought people back to Comiskey, and we felt that. He needed to be celebrated for that, and we we, need, we needed to remember how important uh, Dick was to this city and to the White Sox organization. It's so hard, for, I'm sure, for people to believe that one guy could have such an impact on keeping a franchise together, but it was all the things that were happening as a result of him being there that were happening around him. You know, you mentioned Harry Carey. Uh, you mentioned Nancy Faust, who comes up with, uh, with the walk-up music uh, that everybody hears to this day. Uh, you know, this young organist comes in there and, and, and figures out a way to, to honor Dick, Dick Allen by playing Jesus Christ Superstar as he steps to the plate. Nancy Faust was and is, because she's still active, uh, just a, a brilliant person, a, a brilliant musician who started with the White Sox in 1970. She was, I believe she was 24, 25 years old, but she came from a musical background. Her mom was a well-known performer. She performed for the uh, WLS uh, National Barn Dance for years. So she was a known commodity here in Chicago. And and Nancy had uh, always had taken the keyboards early and had played at different events, including events for the Allen family, a wealthy, as I mentioned, a wealthy family out of Wilmette. And that sort of uh, uh, brought her to the attention of the White Sox. Um, so she was hired in the 1970 season, that season when they didn't draw 500,000 fans. And she was out originally in the uh, um, in the center field bleachers of old Comiskey where no one was sitting. And she got a chance to, you know, experiment while she was on the job. There was a guy who was with the White Sox in the 60s, a guy named Shea Torrent, an organist who eventually moved on to California. And he was a, a really sharp organist. Um, and, and Nancy had listened to him, but she took it to another level by, as you, as you mentioned, you know, walk-up music. She started that early on, back in 1970, doing little themes, musical themes for players, uh, both for the White Sox and opposing teams uh, when, when they walked up to the plate. Um, tunes that, that, that were identifiable with the player, that were identifiable with their name, with something they did in the news recently. Um, and then she uh, started commenting on the game musically. And this was something that was not, you know, totally new for Major League Baseball. You had, you, you had organists like Shea Torrent and the Dodgers, Brooklyn Dodgers had Gladys George, but there was no one who was, you know, making these witty comments on the game like Nancy was. And it was immediately noticed. It was noticed by another man who had just started with the White Sox, Harry Carey, who started um, after a legendary career in St. Louis. Uh, he, he was forced out of St. Louis for controversial reasons um, and then moved to Oakland for a year. Didn't get along with Charlie Finley. 
Jack Brickhouse, the uh, legendary broadcaster for the Chicago Cubs and White Sox, uh, told Harry, you know, there's this opening in uh, Chicago. Uh, why don't you come to Chicago? The only problem was WMAQ had dropped them from uh, dropped the White Sox uh, from their uh, radio station after 1970. So uh, Harry was forced to be on a radio and sort of a loose amalgamation of suburban radio stations in LaGrange and Evanston and Joliet. Um, and yet he was able to build a fan base in 1971, build back the fan base with his dynamic broadcasting. Everybody knows Harry's dynamic style. <laughs> and, and, and while he was broadcasting in 1971, Harry made a connection immediately with Nancy Faust. He noticed what she was doing um uh with these little musical cues and 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 he would he would promote that on the air and he would say hey listen to what the organist is doing she really gets it and they soon connected and they developed their own um 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 traditions for instance uh take me out to the ball game which was uh harry and nancy together you know uh, pushed by bill veck later on so so it, you know, it was the, the, the combination of these these um, uh, people pro providing stadium stadium entertainment and and pushing the Sox back into the mainstream and the media, who also really helped energize the team in the early seventies. John Owens, author and journalist, joining me here on the Andy Mazur podcast. As we wrap up our best of season three edition, we leave the sports world and head to the movie industry. John T. Connor is a noted cinematographer and camera operator. He's worked on a bunch of movies in his 30-plus years in the industry. He recently was the camera A operator on Top Gun Maverick, and he talked to me about No Day being the same in his line of work. The thing I always admired and I liked about my job uh, covering sports was that I knew when I went to the ballpark that day, I was probably going to see something that I had never seen before. I, I could never yeah. plan for the day. I could plan for what I wanted to do yeah. that day, but I could never plan for how the thing was going to turn out. And it, it always excited me. And I didn't realize it until, you know, for the last few years, I have not been around the ballpark and it, you, you kind of missed that adrenaline. So I'm wondering now if you're, well, you know, you say you're, you're between things right now. I mean, do you yeah. still kind of think, Oh man, I got to get back into this. Cause I, I, I missed the thrill of it. Or do you get to a certain point where you're like, okay, I can wait. I'm just going to go to the next one. Yeah. I think it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, I got a couple of projects I've been called about and some are exciting and some are not so exciting. And yeah, I just, uh, I think, you know, obviously some people get older and bitter, but I, I don't think I'm getting that at all. I still really enjoy it. And yeah, I, I think I lean more on the side of, I can't wait to go back to work, um, and do something cool because you're being creative you know all day you're you're figuring stuff out you're problem solving you're you're using your brain you're using everything you have and experiences from where you've been forever and uh it's enjoyable to apply all that you know and and then to see the finished product up on a screen or on a tv and then to have people talking about it so yeah it's um it's it's far and few between where the projects get uh noticed but um uh, everyone is an experience, no matter how big or how small, uh, you know, there's always an experience to be had. So, yeah, I, I, I still have the thrill uh, quite, quite, you know, 
it, we don't really retire in this business. You know, you, you pretty much do it until you die. You know, it's like, it's, uh, it is truly a, a way of life, you know, and physically, as long as physically you can do it. But I've even seen people that are, are barely physically able to do it are still doing it because they just absolutely love it. You know? How much do you enjoy the ability to do different things on different projects? And is there one thing that, uh, that kind of sticks out to you that says, you know, this is what I kind of like to focus on now. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to kind of hedge my, my way into, you know, being a, a known cinematographer. Um, you know, you pretty much throw away your resume each time you move up a position. Um, you know, you suddenly don't work and it's been a really tough eight years for me, uh, in this transition. And I'm also dealing with diversity, uh, which is, it's really, uh, tough to be a white male, uh, in this business, whether you're a director or a DP, you're not getting the jobs now. And I know that the white male has always had the jobs and they, you know, that, and it's time for other people and the diversity is good. And, you know, and everyone that's, uh, you know, deserving should be there and um but it's it's tricky when you've worked your for 33 years in the business and then you can't get a job uh it's really tricky for a lot of people and a lot of people are falling and i watched my father kind of fall to that um so i tried to start a little side business to have that to fall back on uh in anticipation of that happening to me um so you know you have to stay young you have to stay uh, current you have to stay uh hip um, you know, to, to stay, um, in the business. So it's, you know, you constantly have to reinvent yourself. Uh, you know, um, you know, you have to try the cool stuff. You can't be old school, even though you are old school, you, you know, I've had to adapt with the new school. Uh, the discipline isn't there that there used to be, you know, uh, we weren't even allowed to talk to actors. We weren't allowed to sit. We weren't allowed to eat on set. We, there was a whole, you know, uh, um, way to do things and etiquette, you know, and now, you know, my loader married Julia Roberts, you know, and, uh, everyone's like dating everybody and the actors are with camera people and grips and, you know, it's a whole different, there's, it's, it's, it's good. The whole business has evolved into this different world. Um, it's quite different, but, uh, but yeah, I, I truly do, uh, enjoy going to work every day. Um, and, and trying to, uh, do the coolest things out there. So yeah, I'm trying to point myself in a direction to do movies. Um, it's tough to do movies. TV's a little easier to fall into. And that's where I've kind of fallen into is the streaming networks. Um, that's kind of like where, and you can go places from there too. You can do a streaming show like uh, Ozark, you know, or something and, and you get noticed because it's a great looking show. It's a great acted show and the, the, and the stories are good. And people go places from there. Um, so I try to line myself up with the jobs that are, are going to get noticed basically. And those are usual, usually visual, uh, jobs that, that help me get noticed. Like a comedy is not going to do anything for me, uh, other than pay my bills for the, the, in the meantime, but, uh, doing something cool is, is really where, where you want to involve yourself. You know, you want to involve yourself with the best team out there. You know, you kind of try to, you know, make that your life and make that your universe. So. Um, yeah, it's a little bit, uh, kind of pre thought out, you know, way to go, but you never know. <laughs> All right. So take us inside a little bit here about, uh, about actually making the donut and what a day is like on a set and, you know, how much prep there is even before the, the, the actors get on the, get out of the set and how much time you actually spend 
you know, before they even show up. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's all about prep. Uh, that's the key, uh, in anything again, uh, sports and everything. It's like, you gotta be, uh, ready for it. And, you know, uh, Jamie Foxx, I worked with him on a, on a movie, uh, about sports, uh, called all-star weekend. And it's about basketball and, uh, you know, the, it, and unfortunately didn't make it out and maybe will someday, but we did it about four years ago and, uh, he directed it and it's the first thing he directed. And he acted in it and he played three parts. It was fantastic. We had all-star cast. Um, but uh, you can look it up on IMDb. I think it tells a little about, about it. But it was when Curry, you know, was at a different team. And so it's not even really relevant now. So I don't know if it'll come out. But um, but anyway, he said, you know, making a movie is like a playing basketball game, like with a bunch of people, like a pickup game. And, uh, you know, you throw the ball at one person and it goes out of bounds and you you know, the first time you play basketball with anybody, it's just, it's crazy. And the second time you go out and play, you know, you, alley-oops are happening and the, you know, the passing and the, you know, the assists and everything and everything works really well. But it's, you know, as he said, it's really tricky. So it's about prep. But, you know, the first time you put a bunch of people together, no one knows how things work. It's a, it's like a new team, you know. Uh, so it's really tricky, but um you know, everyone has a job to do and everyone's really good at it. And that's why they're there. They're all hired by the producer and they hire the best people they know and put them together and hope they're a team that works. Uh, and uh, it's all about the prep again. Um, but, you know, making a movie like this, there's also, you know, safety concerns. Um, you know, I've almost been killed a few times. Uh, my dad was almost killed at least three times. Uh, you know, he was on the set of Twilight Zone where the helicopter came down and killed three people. And, uh, you know, we go home at the end of the night and uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a dangerous thing that not many people really realize. We take safety courses, safety classes, you know, but, you know, a, a cinematographer was killed on a set, as we all probably heard, uh, you know, last year uh, with a gun that was loaded but wasn't supposed to be and don't even still really know where that's going. It's so, yeah, it's a, it's a really, un, for many years, it was like a circus, you know, it was like we're traveling circus and we're like carnies, like we, there were no rules. There was no OSHA barely was involved. There's no safe, there's no regulation in the movie industry. It's the one business that was not regulated at all. So, you know, accidents happen and we push the envelope all the time and uh, definitely push the envelope on Top Gun with, you know, uh, everything and stunts and, and flying and obviously, um, but again, it comes down to the prep and the, you know, and the, all that, all that goes into the thought process of all the, all the people. It's uh it's pretty crazy business for sure. John T. Connor, check out his resume of films on IMDB. It's an impressive list for sure. I'll be back to wrap up the best of season three edition of the Andy Mazur podcast in just a moment. The Andy Mazur Podcast is sponsored by Roots Pizza, part of the 5050 Group, with four locations throughout the city of Chicago, South Loop, Old Town, Lincoln Square, and the flagship restaurant in West Town. Roots features Quad City-style pizza with the ingredients on top of the cheese, and it's cut into strips. The crust is malted for that hint of sweetness with every bite. Don't forget to order the mozzarella sticks. They are simply life-changing. Roots is open for dine-in and carry-out. For the restaurant location near you, head to rootspizza.com or download their app from the App Store or Google Play Store. 
Roots Pizza. Take it from me. It's so good. The Andy Mazur Podcast. Now, here's Andy. That's going to do it for this edition of the Andy Mazur Podcast. Sponsored by Roots Pizza. Head to rootspizza.com for more information. Hope you enjoyed the look back at the best of season three interviews. Also, please hit that subscribe button wherever you're hearing this podcast so I know you're out there and enjoying what you're hearing. If you want to get in touch, head to our Facebook page for the Andy Maester Podcast. You can leave a comment right there. Also, we're on YouTube with clips and highlights of each episode of the podcast. That's it for this episode. Many thanks to Big Earn, Ernie Scadden, the voiceman, for his help as always. And mostly, thanks to you for listening. Until next time, it's Andy Mazur saying, play nice, kids. Take care. Andy Mazur. Hi, pal. (laughs) 